Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, thank you, Choir Orchestra, for your ministry among us. And I just want to welcome all of you here at uh, Central Campus, those of you who are joining us online, and also those of you who are meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, down in South Calgary, and also in the Crowfoot Theatres of Northwest Calgary. Well, we're studying the book of James together, and once again, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles uh, to the second chapter of this compelling letter. Now, in the last few verses of James chapter 1, James gives a description of what he calls true religion or a genuine, mature faith in Christ and what that looks like in action. He essentially says people who have a mature faith, uh, first of all, have a controlled tongue. Secondly, they have a genuine compassion for the most vulnerable and needy. And thirdly, they seek to be more like Christ, reflecting the character and the values and the mission of Christ. Well, we come now to chapter 2. And I believe this is not a new section, but actually a continuation of what James addresses in the latter part of chapter 1. In other words, James is saying here a further evidence of a mature faith in Jesus Christ is not being guilty of the sin of favoritism or partiality. So would you stand with me and join me in reading our scripture lesson for today? My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for James, for uh, inspiring him, anointing him to write this letter. And Lord, we ask that you would expand our understanding of your intent behind this letter. And we ask, oh God, that you would soften our hearts. You would give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So James starts out chapter 2 with a single command. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So what is favoritism? Favoritism is judging someone on the basis of their outward appearance. Now, we may not want to admit it, but if the truth were known, most of us, if not all of us, walk around with secret lists in our minds of certain kinds of people that we like and other people that we endure at best. The desirables and the undesirables. The in-crowd and the out-crowd. We constantly evaluate and make judgments of people, not on the basis of internal factors like their character and their values, but solely on the basis of external criteria, like their appearance and their social status. And based on our assessment of a person's external criteria, we will either withhold or give our love, our friendship, our mercy and our service to them. A couple of years ago during our summer break, uh, we were watching reruns of a show just for laughs. You'll notice that's about the only time that you hear me talk about watching TV is in the summer break. And we watched this show on Just for Laughs, which really illustrates what I just mentioned. Just for Laughs is a show in which hired actors try to play a joke on people in some way. Well, on this particular show, the producers hired an attractive actress to stand next to a bicycle uh, with the chain off near a very busy commuter train station. In the first scene, they, they made the attractive actress look unattractive, as defined by our culture, by the way, and instructed her to stand holding the bike and to have an expression on her face that basically said, could you please help me? Well, even though hundreds of people passed her, nearly 30 minutes went by before a fellow finally stopped to help her. Then they had this same actress remove the outdated, oversized dress and all the other paraphernalia to make her look unattractive and, her, and replace it all with a skimpy, tight-fitting dress. As before, her job was to stand holding the same bike with the chain off and the same, can you please help me, expression on her face. This time, it took less than a minute. For one, not one, but several fellows to stop and to offer to give her a hand. Now, it was all done in fun, of course, but it revealed how we are inclined 
to either withhold or to give our help based on what our judgment is of a person's appearance. Some of us look down on those who are overweight. Others resent those who, are in, who in their mind are too preoccupied with being fit and trim. Some look down on those who wear outdated clothes. Others look down on those they perceive put too much money in their wardrobe. I have, uh, just for your information, I have a Gilda Radner philosophy of dress. And she said, I make fashion choices based on what doesn't itch. <laughs> and that is me. You know, truly. Others um, of us, we will hold, withhold uh, our friendship because of a person's ethnicity or a person's race. Steve Zeisler tells the story of an African-American who was trying to join a church in the South that had a long history of bigotry and racism. And they just simply kept rebuffing him. They just wouldn't let him in. And finally, out of frustration, he went to the pastor and told the pastor about his frustration. And the pastor simply said, well, son, you just need to pray about it. About three weeks later, he saw the fellow again. And he asked him, he says, well, son, he said, did you pray about it? And the man said, well, actually, I did. And God said to me, I know what you mean. I've been trying to get into that church for 20 years. <laughs> and they still haven't let me in. You know, even though this humorous little story isn't true, of course, it reminds me how grieved our Lord must be when we discriminate like this in the church. I mean, we expect this in the culture around us. But James says it shouldn't be part of the church. He says, don't do it. Don't make judgments about people based on appearance alone. In verse 2, he goes on to give an example that he probably witnessed himself as pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The church is gathered for worship in a public space. In fact, the Greek word for this assembly uh, indicates it was probably a local synagogue. And it is pretty much standing room only. A wealthy man and a poor man, they arrive late and they arrive at the same time. The usher gives the rich man special treatment, leads him directly to one of the only few remaining seats, but it's a really good seat. He then comes back to the poor man, and he says, well, if you'd like, you can stand back here with me, or if you'd like, you can sit on the floor in front of me. And James essentially says, this kind of discrimination should not be happening. And then he goes on to explain why. First of all, we shouldn't discriminate because it dishonors our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1, James clearly implies that favoritism is inconsistent with the character and the conviction of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to break down barriers of social class. He came to break down barriers of race and of gender, which were huge issues in that day. Instead, he came to introduce a 
new kingdom that would be polar opposite of the kingdom of this world. A kingdom that would be defined by a revolutionary kind of love. A kingdom where, in the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew or Gentile. There's neither slave or free, male or female. But a kingdom where everyone is one in Jesus Christ. A kingdom where we are all unique. And we're all special, but we are seen as equals through faith in Jesus Christ. It is that which unites us. In verse 5, James says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Now, James is not saying here that God loves the poor more than he loves the rich. I sure hope he's not saying that because, folks, when you think of the entire world, we're the rich ones. We're all rich in this country. Do you realize that 50% of the world lives on less than $2 a day? Folks, we're rich. But what James is saying here, that Jesus is not placing higher value on, on being poor than being rich. No, he's saying in his kingdom, the poorest person can be the richest in God's eyes. Because from God's perspective, the truly wealthy are not necessarily those who are rich in cash, but those who are rich in faith. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, the way into my kingdom isn't through wealth or education or social status or any other earthly thing that we tend to value so highly. No, he says, the way into my kingdom is through spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The way in is to have a spirit of genuine humility, a deep awareness of my need for God to forgive me and to redeem me by His grace. And James says often it is the poor who teach us a very valuable truth. And it is this. When you don't have a lot of material possessions, when you regularly wonder how you're going to make ends meet and provide for your loved ones. It isn't a huge step to see your need for God. On the other hand, many times when our physical and our material needs are met, it can be easy, it can, become, it can be easy to become oblivious to our need for God. In short, he's saying, because the poor are more inclined to see their need for God than the rich are, they're often the ones who show us, who lead the way into the kingdom of God. 
They're the ones to show us how all of the earthly things that many people will sell their souls for aren't important to God, aren't important in his kingdom. Now imagine how shocking this truth would have been to the rich of that day. I mean, in their culture, they were it. They sat in the seat of power and influence. I mean, when they said jump, people jumped. And yet, when they came to faith in Jesus Christ and became part of the church, the culture of the church was totally opposite of what they were used to in the culture around them. The culture in the church was seeing, was one in which everyone was seen as equal. The poor, the slaves, people from various ethnicities. And imagine how totally revolutionary this would have been to the poor, to the slaves, to the women of that day. I mean, in that culture, they, they had no rights. They owned no property. They had no voice. And yet when they became Christ's followers, all of that changed. The church was the one place on the planet where they mattered and their voice was heard, where they were accepted, where they were valued, where they had dignity and were seen and treated as equals. There were no divisions, there were no cliques, there were no social barriers, there, there were no losers, no dorks in the church because they understood that what matters most to God is not all the external criteria that causes people to be divided, that causes resentment among people toward others. But you see, they understood what really mattered was the state of our heart. A humble, surrendered, dependent heart that is rich in faith. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16 that the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And that's why we're not to discriminate. Because it dishonors our Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he came to bring. Furthermore, we shouldn't discriminate because we're dishonoring who we are in Christ. In verse 6, James says, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, most likely, the usher who gave preferential treatment to the wealthy man here in James' story, most likely he was poor himself. He'd been raised in a culture where poor people had little or no social contact with the rich. And James is essentially saying uh, to this usher, when you give the wealthy guy preferential treatment, you are communicating that, at least for you, to be rich in cash 
is more valuable than to be rich in faith. That the value system of this world with its competition and comparisons and class distinctions is more appealing to you than the kingdom of God. That basing your identity on how you compare with others matters more to you than who you are in Christ. And in so doing, you're not only dishonoring Christ, but you're also dishonoring who you are in Christ. In verse 6 and 7, James gives some examples of how the rich were exploiting the poor. You know, in the first century, the courts were corrupt. If you had money, all you had to do was offer a bribe. And you always got your way. And sometimes that's still true today. And so James asks, in light of this, in light of the way that the rich are exploiting you, why do you continue to buy into the value system of your culture? A system that is not only oppressive, but is contrary to the values of the kingdom of God. When you do, when you show favoritism to the wealthy in the church, you are not only dishonoring Christ, but you're dishonoring who you are in Christ. A third reason we shouldn't discriminate is because we're breaking God's law. Look at verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now in Jesus' day, the Jews saw God's law as kind of set up as a sort of plus-minus system. They believed Every time they obeyed the law, they got credit. And every time they disobeyed the law, well, they got a deduction. And as long as you kept a positive balance, they believed that they were okay with God. They also believed that some laws were more important than others. Keeping the Sabbath, for example, was one of the most important laws to keep. They believed that if you broke all the other laws but kept the Sabbath you were probably still in good standing with God. Now this perspective must have crept into the thinking of some of the early Christians that came from a Jewish heritage or had a Jewish heritage because there were some who thought that favoritism was just no big deal compared to things like committing adultery or murder. And the truth is, many of us think that way about many of the principles and precepts that we read in Scripture. We see some as important, others we just kind of ignore. Well, in verse 9 to 11, James lets them know in no uncertain terms that if they show favoritism, they are sinning. And that if they've broken one of God's laws, they've broken them all. Mark Adams says, think of it this way. How many strikeouts 
does it take to ruin a perfect batting average? Just one. How many speeding tickets does it take to ruin a perfect driving record? Just one. In the same way, says James, you only have to break one law to be a lawbreaker. And when you discriminate, you're sinning, you're breaking the law. So how do we overcome the temptation to discriminate? Well, look at verse 8. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. The way to overcome favoritism is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, before I explore some practical ways to love your neighbor, it's important that I remind us of why it is that we're tempted to discriminate in the first place. And I just want to give credit to Brian Clark for his insights on this particular area. As I pointed out earlier in this series, the core temptation that we all face as human beings is the same temptation that our first parents faced in the Garden of Eden. It is the temptation to be our own God, to be at the center of the universe, to run our own show. It is this temptation to believe that our life will turn out best if we are in control, if we run the shots. Well, in Genesis 2, we read that we were created in the image of God. And what that means is God intended from the beginning for our sense of identity, our significance, and our value to come from being in relationship with him. But in Genesis 3, we read that Adam and Eve gave into our core temptation. They decided that they were going to go their way rather than God's way. And consequently, their relationship with God was cut off. Which leads to a question. If we are cut off from our source of significance and identity, then where do we get our significance and our value? Well, Brian Clark says, we must get it ourselves. If I decide to be my own God, then I am the one to make myself significant. I have to make myself valuable. So then how do I make myself valuable? Well, on the basis of my performance. I will demonstrate that I have value through my performance. Now, there's nothing wrong with performance. However, when performance becomes the means of my identity and my significance, then I start to become an externally focused person. Rather than someone that's concerned about matters of the heart. For you see, I have to measure my performance, and I do that by measuring myself against you and others. If I run a race, for example, I won't know how fast or how slow I am 
unless I compare myself with someone else. So what this means is, life is defined by competition and comparison. I will determine my significance, my value, based on how I compare with you. In a sense, we're competitors, which ultimately makes every day a selfish drive to demonstrate that I can outperform you. I have to, because that's the source of my value and significance. So life becomes all about competition and comparison by keeping some kind of score. Again, Brian says, to put up points on the scoreboard, it matters what kind of car I drive, the clothes I wear, the house I live in, what my title is, what my profession is, what my degrees are, where I got my degrees from. In short, all the things that we value in our culture that say you matter more than somebody else. I mean, if you're wondering what they are, just listen to the commercials on radio and on television and they'll tell you what they are ad nauseum every day. And so when we're impressed with the clothes that people wear, when we're impressed with the cars that they drive, or when we dress to impress other people, or we drive certain cars to impress other people, you see, we're buying right into this superficial sense of values. And folks, that's what's behind the temptation to discriminate. That's what's behind our tendency to set ourselves up as judges of other people's value based on external criteria. Now, unfortunately, the performance-based value system ultimately leads to despair, to loneliness, and a world without genuine love. And the reason is this. You see, if I come out feeling good about myself, it's because I've compared myself with you and I think I'm better than you. Which leads to the sin of arrogance and ultimately results in a shallow relationship and a lonely life. Because who wants to be around an arrogant person who thinks that he's better than other people? On the other hand, if you outperform me, my self-esteem and my self-confidence takes a nosedive. And that leads to despair, which causes me to withdraw and leads to a lonely life and shallow relationships as well. You see, the performance-based value system of this world leads to major disappointment, and it even results in destruction. And so when James says in chapter 1, keep yourself from being polluted by the world, when he says in chapter 2 here, don't show favoritism, 
He's talking about rejecting this value system that characterizes the kingdom of this world. He's saying, see it for what it is. It is a no-win system that divides and destroys and leads people to despair and to loneliness and to counterfeit love. Which leads us to ask, so what is the alternative? Well, clearly it's Jesus and his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul drives a spike right into the sin of favoritism when he says in verse 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Paul says we have nothing to be arrogant about. All we have is from the Lord, including the gifts and the talents that we have. So when I put my trust in Christ and I commit to following the Lord, I'm saying I can't do this myself. I can't perform well enough. I can't merit favor with God. I can't save myself. We're saying, I believe and I humbly accept that Jesus did for me on the cross what I could not do for myself. To not only forgive me, but by His grace make a way for me to be reconciled with my heavenly Father who is the source, the source of my salvation, the source of my identity, my significance, my value, which is what God intended in the first place when He created me. Amen? You see, my significance is not rooted in my performance. It is rooted in my relationship with God. And that changes everything. It sets me free to live and to fulfill the calling that God has given to me. I don't need to compete with you or compare myself with you. In God's kingdom, I'm actually free to love you because I don't feel any pressure to prove my worth to you. I can cheerlead your success because in Christ I know who I am. And I am set free from the performance-based value system of this world. And church, this truth is what sets us free to love our neighbors as ourselves. This truth is what sets us free from thinking about ourselves every moment of every day. As citizens of God's kingdom, rather than this worldly kingdom, we are set free from self, from self-centered thinking, from comparing and competing. And instead, we are free to give ourselves away and genuinely love the people around us. Which brings me back to the question, how then can we practically love our neighbor? Well, first of all, we need to establish who our neighbor is. Jesus told the 
parable of the Good Samaritan in response to that question, who is my neighbor? In the context of what James is talking about here in chapter 2, our neighbor is anyone that we encounter, but it especially applies to those that we would most likely struggle with loving. Those we discriminate against. Those that we're not easily drawn to. Again, in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan was the least likely person to help the injured traveler. Because Samaritans and Jews were enemies in those days. In a way, therefore, the neighbor that we're talking about loving here is someone who feels more like an enemy. Someone you don't want to love right now. Or at least don't feel like loving. Now who might that be in your life? For some of you, it may be your spouse. Who right now feels more like an enemy than a friend. For others of you, it may be a parent or a child. It might be a co-worker. It might be an employee or perhaps a boss who is driving you up the wall. Still for others, it could be an actual neighbor whose immoral lifestyle or ethnicity or religion is contrary to your own. Well, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? But love your enemies. Do good to them. So let's say that you have two neighbors. The neighbor on the one side is of a different religion. The neighbor on the other side is living a lifestyle that you think is immoral and that you just don't agree with. How would Jesus have you love them in a practical way? Well, first of all, love them by accepting them. In verse 13 here in chapter 2, James says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, the reality is for too many of us who call ourselves Christians, often it is judgment that triumphs over mercy. And yet James is challenging us not to have a judgmental spirit, but to be gracious and accepting of those that we disagree with. Do you know why people have a hard time accepting others? They confuse acceptance with approval. There's a big difference between the two. You can accept someone without approving of their beliefs or their lifestyle. Even if you don't agree with their beliefs or lifestyle, you can still interact with your neighbors with a spirit of grace and of acceptance. Deborah Hurst says, the key to this is to focus on how God sees your neighbor. 
rather than how you see your neighbor. Remember, God created them in his image. They have the imprint of God on them. And they really matter to him. Bill Hybels says, every time you make eye contact with a person, a cab driver, a waitress, a millionaire, a minority person, a grandparent in a rest home, a gay or lesbian, every time, every single person you lock eyes with matters to God. And don't forget the person that you look at in the mirror matters to God too. Focus on the fact that your neighbor matters to God rather than their beliefs, their lifestyle. If you focus on everything that you disagree with, you will have a hard time even just talking to them, even just giving them eye contact, much less loving and accepting them the way that God wants you to. Folks, we need to understand that it is not our job to clean up other people's lives or to fix them or even to change their heart and their mind. That is Jesus' job. Our job is to introduce them to Jesus and let him take care of the other stuff. We need to focus on showing them the love of Jesus by accepting them with no strings attached. Secondly, love them by listening to them. And one of the reasons that we have such a hard time loving our neighbors is because we don't know our neighbors. All we see is how they're different from us, what we don't agree with. We don't know their story. Sometimes, one of the reasons that there's this big barrier between us and our parents or between us and other people is because we don't know their story. We're just mad at them, but we don't, we've never sat down and asked them to tell us what life was like when they were growing up. Have you ever asked your dad, your mom, the person you're resentful for? And that's not to excuse what they did, but if you want to grow in your love for them, then listen to their story. In Luke 6, Jesus said, Bless those who curse you. Bless those that you have a hard time loving. Well, one of the ways you can bless your neighbor is by listening to them. If we want to grow in our love for our neighbor, we need to ask lots of good questions and listen to their story. The more we listen to our neighbor, the more understanding we will be. And the more open and understanding of us, they will be. And we may never agree with them on a certain matter. But our love will grow for each other. Thirdly, love them by praying for them. 
Jesus said, pray for those who mistreat you. Someone has said there is nothing that makes us love a person so much as praying for them. Pray first and foremost about that they would come to know and see the love of Jesus. Pray that God would do what you can't do in their lives and that he would direct your steps in how to love them. And then fourthly, love them by serving them. Again, Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. Do for others as you would have them do for you. You know, we need to remember that God is at work in our neighbor's life, whoever that neighbor is. And he loves them a whole lot more than you do. And he's been pursuing them far more than you realize. He knows things that you don't know. He's at work in ways that you have no idea about. Just be faithful. Extend love and grace to them in his name. Ask yourself, what is the most loving thing I can do for this person? What would be in their best interest? Ask yourself, how would I like to be treated if I was them? And then step out and treat them that way. I'll close with this. Gene Apple tells the true story of an incident that happened in a little 100-member church in Minnesota. One particular Sunday, it was actually the Sunday that he was attending this little church. After the service began, a woman of advanced years made her way conspicuously down the center aisle and sat in the front. And she was dirty, her clothes were tattered, she smelled and she looked like a bag lady. As she mumbled to herself during the worship service, she mumbled to herself during the pastor's message. And from time to time, she would say to the pastor, speak louder, I can't hear you. And as you can imagine, it made others uncomfortable. But the message that day was about loving people that we have a hard time loving, much like this message. Well, before the pastor finished his message, he asked this particular woman to stand. Turns out that she wasn't really a bag lady at all. She was a younger woman in the makeup and the costume of a bag lady. The pastor had planted her there to test the compassion level of the church. So he asked her now to come up on stage and to tell what her experience was like coming to their church that morning. And Gene Apple says that he braced himself in that moment, figuring that she would probably tell a story of being ignored, mistreated, or marginalized. But she went on to tell the most moving story. Out in front of the little white church that day, people saw her and they didn't ignore her. They came up to her and they asked how she was doing. 
and how they could help her. They offered her coffee. One person asked if she was hungry and went off and got her a roast beef sandwich. A number of them had spontaneously given her money. When she came in, the ushers made her feel welcome and, and they helped her find a seat, not somewhere on the edges, but a choice seat front and center. Jean goes on to say, you know, to my knowledge, that little church has never been written about in Christian books or magazines. Their pastor has never been asked to tell the story of their church at a church leadership conference. But I'm convinced that on that day, they achieved greatness in the eyes of God. Now, folks, if you walk out of here and you say, well, I hope these people were listening and don't devalue me anymore, then you've completely missed the point. Because this isn't about what God might be saying to someone else. This is about us asking ourselves, Lord, what are you saying to me? How do I view other people? How do I value others? Who at work, at school, at my church, who next door have I devalued because of the externals? Who don't I want to love? Who do I resent because of their success or their position, their status, their money? Who do I need to stop judging and start extending love and grace to? Who in my life could use mercy and grace this week? Who is God calling me to reach out to and have a conversation with, perhaps over coffee or lunch? See, anytime I see someone that I'd rather not love or think of someone that I'd rather not love, I have a choice. I can extend my hand to them. I can listen to them, perhaps pray with them, even serve them. Or I can avoid them and look the other way. Oh, Lord. Help us as a church to live the royal law, to love our neighbors as you would have us to. Would you please stand with me? Let's open our hands before the Lord again and just take a moment to quiet our hearts and to ask ourselves, that question again. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what would you have me do about it? What's one step you'd have me take? What's one attitude you'd have me change? 
Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to give us a picture of your heart for us. Thank you for the reminder that you are a loving, you are a good God who does not give us these commands, Lord, to make our life miserable. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and showing us with your life, but also establishing the church and teaching about your heart for the church and what a church looks like when it's functioning right. Where people love others, put the interests of others ahead of themselves. Where people do not judge one another based on external criteria. A kingdom, Lord, that is so polar opposite to the world around us. Oh, Lord, help us. Show us, Lord, what that means for each one of us. Give us the courage, Lord, to take one small step. That which you have been revealing to us or perhaps will in the next day or two. And help us to be obedient, to not just listen to the word now, but to do what it says. For we pray it all in your precious name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.